Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dialthegate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 167 of Dial the Gate. My name is David Reed. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Stargate Oral History Project. Uh, we've got a couple of shows for you today. This first one is live with David McNally, who's played three roles in Stargate SG-1, two in SG-1, and one in Atlantis. Before we really get into it, if you like Stargate, <clears throat> Excuse me. And you want to see more content like this on YouTube, it would mean a great deal if you click the like button. It makes a difference with YouTube's algorithm and will continue to help the show grow. Uh, please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend. I know you have them. And if you want to get notified about future episodes, click the subscribe icon. And giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops and it'll get my notifications of any last minute guest changes. And clips from this live stream will be released over the, north, uh, over the course of the next few weeks on the uh, Dial the Gate and GateWorld.net uh, uh, YouTube channels. As this is a live show, I have David uh, with us, and we are going to be uh, asking him questions about his life, his career, uh, his, of course, his time on Stargate. So be sure to get those questions uh, that you have for him to our moderators in the YouTube chat. They'll get them over to me, and in the second half of the show, I will get them to David. David McNally, who played Hanno, who played Simon, who played Avrid, Stargate SG-1, and Stargate Atlantis way back in the day. Sir, this is a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome. It's great for me. I love chatting about the work that we do. So when did you decide that acting was a thing for you can do you were you young were you a little bit older when when did this get stuck in your craw and say you know what this this fits for me i like this i think like a lot of families uh, we always uh, we used to do a thing uh, at my grandparents where after dinner the kids would have to entertain the adults and so uh i somehow at a very young age started uh, as the mc i i would get up and introduce everybody and uh, try to tell a knock-knock joke or something like that and i think uh just the joy that it uh, brought everyone and brought myself was kind of the hook and then i think it was grade two I played the troll in, you know, the grass is greener on the other side sort of story. I don't know if you remember that one. And yes. that was a hit. And then uh, I played like a version of Scrooge. Uh, oh, really? Full gym at, in grade two at the age of seven. So wow. I was hooked. And um, throughout my education, it was the one subject I enjoyed. I, I really didn't take to other subjects that well. And of course, um, by the time I got out of high school, I was destined for university drama education to become a drama teacher. And I also went to the National Theatre School of Canada to train as a theatre actor. Wow. Uh, and out of uh, right out of that, I was working. So uh, it's it was something that's been a part of my life since a very young age. Wow. How long did you teach? I've been teaching up until two years ago. I retired, um, which is great. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. I do a little bit of subbing from time to time, but it frees up a lot of time to kind of just enjoy my family and mm -hmm. uh, 
enjoy living because as a drama teacher, it's all consuming. Absolutely. And I I did that throughout my career as an actor. So I would, you know, fly into Vancouver and to Toronto. I would do a gig and I'd come home and I'd get right back into classes. And uh, it it kept me pretty busy. What I have have taught myself, definitely not drama, though. There is something um, extraordinary about opening doors for people and watching them walk through them and discover a new best facet of themselves. Yeah. And uh, part of that has been teaching the tech as well. So, uh, and they're, they're a a different sort of bird. (laughs) The tech kids, they, they have different interests, but uh, interests, but they, they really bond well. And uh, their collaboration in some ways is stronger than those of the performers. You mean the people who are running the the show behind the scenes, right? Yeah, working the lighting, you know, doing the props, doing the costumes, all that stuff is. So uh, yeah, it's filled up all my days as I raised four kids and. Oh my gosh! That as well. Yeah, all my kids are in their thirties now. Okay. In their lives, and I've got a granddaughter. And ah, how wonderful! Good. If you could do it all over again, what um, department would you think you would you would really you know, uh, your take, teeth into. Uh, that's a tough one. You know, um, my son's, my eldest son is a documentary filmmaker and okay. he, he has so much control uh, in terms of his artistic uh, goals. And I think uh, I would aspire towards that, uh, more towards directing, though I have done lots of directing. Um, my other son has worked both as a dolly grip and as a boom op. And um those are interesting too i just i think it's you know for me it's been a joy just to be a kind of feeder worker because i've done a tremendous amount of stage uh both backstage and on stage um i enjoy the theater the most i would say but uh it's hard to say of the crew positions i think you know the dressers they're a fun bunch the people that go in before everybody and they make that place look like it should and so that when actors walk in, it just feels right. You know, I think that's a great job. There's something um, so unique about the experience of of taking part in a shared uh, mass illusion. Yeah. You're all going to go in there and buy it, or you're not. You know, and it's I I was just I remember watching. <laughs> Avenue Q, <laughs> which is with Muppets, yes. uh, and the uh, the the performers are in black, standing right there with the Muppets, yeah. um, and talking, what not hiding that their mouths are moving while they're moving the puppet, and you have to accept the fact that the people in black are not actually there, and yeah. if you allow yourself to do that. It's very easy to almost forget that they're actually standing there. Well, it is that suspension of disbelief that Coleridge talks about. And, uh, and I think that everybody has to, to buy into it to really get emotionally connected to the story. Um, you have to let go that you're watching a TV. You, know, you have to let go that you're watching actors and immerse yourself into the emotions that the performers are conveying, the music is conveying, the story is bringing. Um, and once you do that, then yeah, we're caught, right? We're, we're, we get caught up to where we're crying, we're laughing, we're angry at somebody, some character that's doing something on there. 
And it, it seems to happen naturally and it might be something instinctual that, you know, storytelling has been around a long time. So it's in our DNA. I think it's an intrinsic part of the human experience. Um, we, there's, there's a lot of you know, psychological work being done now that, that, that it seems to indicate that, that we view our world in terms of stories. And I don't know if it's because we've been raised in stories or because, like you say, it's just a part of our DNA. That's how we manage to filter the world. But there's, there's definitely a lot going on there. And, you know, the, the best way to relate to someone is, is through a story. Yeah. And it happens at childhood, right? The first thing you're doing with your kids is telling them stories. And that's those lessons in mythology that guide them, hopefully establish a foundation to guide them through life. Is there any particular role that stands out to you as one that was particularly transformative for you as a person or one that pushed you in directions that you didn't anticipate or did anticipate? And whew, I got through that. But uh, man, was that a journey? Yeah, I think there's been a few I and mean, mostly the theatrical experience, which mm. for me is a little bit more difficult in that. You, you don't get to stop. <laughs> you got to keep going. Uh, and the audience's reaction is immediate. Um, and you have to ride off that reaction. Um, you know, when I got to play the Scot um, from Shakespeare on a, a major stage here, um, that, was, that was transforming because it pushed my craft to a new level, just being out there for the full two and a half hours and ending with a broadsword fight and all that it took to do nine shows a week um, was a tremendous challenge on top of teaching in the morning. Oh, my God. So, and then, you know, trying to see your kids and wife at the same time. So that was a big one. But in terms of uh, uh, television, uh, you know, there's been some, so many different challenges. Uh, I did an a independent film here in Edmonton. It was called 1132 Pleasant Street. And uh, just being a lead actor on a, on a feature film, uh, an independent film, uh, demanded a lot of, uh, of me personally, just to what I had to sacrifice in order to make that happen. And um, that type of commitment, I think I really grew from, and it gave me a lot of confidence in approaching more television and approaching um, my craft. Mm. Yeah, they're not paying you just for your, you know, your, your time and your actor skills. They're paying for the, your brain bandwidth. Yeah. You know, and things can say, I mean, we, we've all seen the stories and read the tabloids about how marriages and everything else suffer, you know, when you've, you've got, you got people on set for, for all hosts or in theater for all hosts reasons, you know, it's a lot of time and it's a lot of effort to bring life to this, this thing that exists temporally and then is gone, you know, and is in just exists in people's hearts and minds. You're, it's you're very isolated as a for me kind of I was um, you know more of episodic I would come in as a guest star or guest lead or a principal or something on different shows um, you fl you're flown in you're driven to your hotel you're driven to set you meet your wardrobe and your makeup you you might get a chance to meet some of the other actors on that day um, you might get a chance to read the script you may not most often not with the other cast members before you go to set. You arrive to set, there's a, there's a brief rehearsal after you go through the rigmarole of getting prepared, um, and then you're shooting. And then it's done. It's in the camp. See you. You're back to your hotel. You're off flying back. And so it, that isolated world um, where you're separated from your community 
to and engaged into a new collaboration where people know each other and you're trying to to do it right for them because it's their baby and you're just kind of a an invited guest um I, I find that really challenging and it can be demanding on family, of course, because those those months in hotels and stuff like that, when you're doing films are uh, they really tear out your heart because for me, I hated being on the phone to my kids and wife. You know, I just that was the one thing I just didn't want to do that no more. Um, but I enjoy the craft so much and uh, I wanted to keep growing as an actor. So it was just, you know, balancing that throughout my life that uh, has allowed me to have the success that I do. It's great that you recognize it and it got to, you know, do some, let, let, let me get into it. Korai, um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, is one of the greatest hours of science fiction period. Thank you. And it, uh, is, it is all about the performances on the screen. Um, you have, this was the back half of the first season of Stargate SG-1. I don't believe the show had aired yet. Uh, and you are figuring this thing out. Tell us about how you got Hanno. Uh, that's interesting. Um, how did it happen? Uh, you know, I think I... Oh, oh yes. Um, I kind of... I, I had done an Outer Limits. And I, you know, I ended up doing four Outer Limits over the years. But... Uh, I had done an Outer Limits, and I think that MGM had seen me in that, uh, some of the producers. And so it got me a crack at, uh, at Hano. And um, so I, I would usually drive to Vancouver as opposed to fly just to save a little money. So it's that 13-hour drive from Edmonton. Get through the mountains and oh, yeah. uh, straight, through, <laughs> yeah, straight through the audition. And uh, just uh, it just worked out really well. And um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed um Mario as a party uh, was the director, I believe. And uh, he, he kind of took to me. In fact, he brought me over from SG to do a, uh, another Outer Limits right after it. So I went one to the other on that one. Um, and coming into it, I, I'm Métis, um, which is, you know, I'm half Cree and half Scottish-Irish. Um, and so for me, it felt like it was very communal. Like it was about this small community that's trying to survive. Uh, against tyranny, you know, oppression. And, um, and so I think I kind of took to it that way. Um, and then just the confidence I had from being a stage actor, um, I've, I think that uh, helped me just to step in amongst the greats you know, that I was working with um, and feel confident to, to give a performance. Uh, I feel I, you know, I learned a lot in that experience too. And cause just with television and film, you have to pull back so much, you know, like the frame is only so big. And as a stage actor, I'm used to, you know, the size and all that stuff. So, um, just that sort of reeling in the craft and, and allowing it to happen inside and not worrying so much about pushing it out for, because the camera's coming to find you. And so I, that's kind of the story behind that one. <laughs> In terms of how I got it, you know, always audition. How did you read? Um, I, I think it's it's the rare person among us who have had to uh, face the killer of a family member. Um, you know, on top of someone that the audience recognizes as an ally. Was that tricky? Um, you know, it, it was... 
I think it's because of the, again, the experiences and the much, the amount of reading I do. You know, I spend a lot of time reading and just immersing myself into great novels. And uh, you get, uh, again, that emotional connection when you, you identify with a, a character or a hero in some way. And um, it's just, you know, kind of breathing it in, right, to imagine that someone's killed your father and you were a child. And, and that imagination... And then uh, allowing yourself just to feel it and, and not worrying about whether or not you're portraying it real, you know, realistically, because it is real. And, and everyone's reactions are different to that type of tragedy. Um, so go with the, the feeling that you have um, and allow yourself to believe that it's going to work, you know, without doubting yourself in the journey. Um I, I think also just the fact that those actors were so welcoming, you know, uh, that was that was a place that was easy to walk into and um, really comfortable way of working on on the set of Stargate. It was it wasn't, uh, you know, someone with a stopwatch trying to push through scenes. Oh, we got it. You know, no, it was like, OK, let's do it right. Let's take our time. Let's let's figure it out. And, and there's humor always happening between every take, which keeps everyone light and. Have to have levity. This is, I mean, considering the material that you're dealing with here, you know, it would be, it would be just a, just a a mess to get through. Tell us about those courtroom scenes. Yeah, that was working the the opposition with 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 the different with the different guys. You know, with that one, I really enjoyed that because usually my television experiences up until then were, um, you know, like short scenes, uh, quick dialogue not a lot of monologue opportunity where you get to take a run at something for a while. And so, uh, and of course, being a stage actor, that was my preference. And so when I got a chance to get into a courtroom, it felt very much like a stage and uh, to be able to run for a while to kind of just allow the thoughts to come um, and to really have a specific intention in terms of, I want this man dead. I want this Jaffa dead. He's, He's destroyed my life. And uh, so staying focused on my intent, um, having the opportunity to feel as if I was playing a room, which is so cool. Uh, and just the, um, the sort of uh, stillness of everyone else within that courtroom allowed my mobility and, and energy to really zoom in on Christopher for that scene. And uh, for me, I just, I loved it. It was great. The script is such a tightrope walk because you could have a kid, well, a, a young man, a, an adult, you know, who's close-minded and says, based on his legal system, I don't care what y'all want. I want his head. And that's all. And I, I go back and I watch the episode. We just rewatched it in Wormhole Extremists. And I think part of it is, okay, um, Look at these people's hardware. Look at where they're coming from. We have to we have to play it a little bit safer with them because where, where they come, uh, many may come after. Uh, and I think that, that that partly plays into his decision. But also, even considering everything that he's gone through, I think part of it is the passage of time. He's more reasonable at least to listen. And the Korai allows, at the very least, a platform for him to listen and hear about the triumphs of this man since he has turned from his false god. Uh, and, you know, balancing that performance, most of this comes down to the script, but balancing that performance as an actor, you know, has to be has to be pretty tricky because you're trying to make sure that the performance is as authentic as possible without coming off as disingenuine. Yeah. 
And I think the character Hanor really wanted to just kill him right off. Um, but there were principles or, you know, um, a foundation in that society that wants to grow right. It didn't want to become a mayhem of, uh, you know, strength is the ruling force. Um, it wants to be a society where it has the, those laws that everyone adheres to. And, and that's what's going to make us a better society. And so he was really convinced by those around him to restrain and, and to pull back. And also, I think Hanno was a leader within that society. So he had to set an example that was correct in terms of his position in that community. And so following through on the Korai was the right thing to do. And I think he felt confident he was going to win, especially with with the way that uh, Christopher um, played Tilk and that uh, he was just ready to to accept his his punishment. This this case represents the many. Yeah. Um, and then and Rick says, well, Jack says it should not that the, the dichotomy of those two warriors, um, both of them, depending on your view, guilty of. God knows what in service to their governments, um, their countries, uh, the the moral uh, tightrope walk at play is delicious. And I think really as an audience member going back and watching it, this is one of the first ones uh, that you could really see that they're sinking their teeth into. And we're just kind of like on the edge of our seat saying, you know, this this kind of apply this applies to both of them, you know, yeah. and Jack yeah. is arguing, you know. For, for himself as much as for Teal, when you really look beneath the surface. Yeah, he's going to transgress the law of this society that he's walked into and also his own society. If he just rushes in and, and takes him away or creates conflict with this community, he's, he's, he's taken us backwards in terms of what law can bring to a society. Mm-hmm. True justice, you know, to... How do we get true justice? And, and of course, it poses all kinds of other questions. It's like, is because somebody did something in the past, should they, you know, uh, uh, feel punishment for, for that? Something that happened, whatever, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, should they be uh, responsible for that in the present? Absolutely. That's just... That one, no. Stirs a lot of <laughs> Of course, you know, and sci-fi is the best play because it's all it's all these genres. You can tell these stories, you know, Nuremberg level questions and get away with it in science fiction because it puts it, it puts a fair amount of distance between us and the subject matter so that we can take it all in as an audience member and go, okay, based on this set of circumstances, where where I placed in this situation how would i do any better you know so and and people change right people change people go through change and and what as i mean i think back to myself as a as a foolish teenager you know um i'm so happy i i mean those experiences i i regret to think about them but now i know that they were a learning experience to make me wiser and to guide me into making better decisions as i went forward um and then there's the responsibility of being a warrior, being a soldier, and what you're asked to do, uh, and how you weigh that with your conscience. You know, um, can you do that? But wh- I guess once you sign up as a soldier, and that's your job, and and you're going to be asked to do things that uh, you don't want to do in your conscience, 
but uh, but you end up doing and then you have to live with those things and that's huge you know and I, I imagine the military people that follow stargate really saw that within the themes of the of the show because they know they, they could be asked at any point to to drop a bomb on someone or to do you know something atrocious that would they would never want to, done to their own family but it's their responsibility as, they live as, with forever yeah yeah. So, so that those themes are so strong. I mean, it's it's like those are powerful themes for for uh, you know a forty seven minute sci fi. Right? It's huge. Absolutely. My only com- my only issue with the episode, uh, and they hang they hang a lantern on it earlier on. You know, we're overdue for a visit. Is the time? But it has to. You have to buy it. You know, is yeah. is the timing of the arrival of oh. the opportunity for Teal to redeem himself. Uh, yeah. And Hanno has to see that change. He has to witness it himself um, to understand uh, what journey of transformation this particular Jaffa has been on since last seeing him. Yeah, that's yeah, true. And I, you know, the Stargate, I'm, you know, I think that um, we just, yeah, like you say, you have to be open to whatever can come through there. Right? It's like at any time. Uh, and that's part of buying into the the show and, and what it's all about. And I mean, I, coincidence does happen. Serendipity does happen. Does. Things do happen in life. So why can't we buy it in in science fiction? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the the scene at the episode at at the end uh, with even Teal is like, I am the one, you know. And, and I was like, ah, I think you, I think you, I think you slayed that man. <laughs> is yeah. is a great scene. Uh and it works. You know, I think I think that the the pieces were were set up properly so that we can go back and as as an audience and say yeah, yeah. Teal has had a, an opportunity to really um uh show his his quality if I'm going to borrow from Tolkien uh yeah. in this episode and we as an audience uh, we we buy that yes this is this is an excuse for him to be redeemed but we'll Hanno buy it and I think yeah. I think it works yeah and and the I, the other Stargate members also I think they know that Tilk has has come through um, what his past um, and and so that they're confident of that but and they're making every effort to save him but at the same time they have to weigh that question of well. What about what he did? You know what he what he's done in the past, um, and can they continue to love him, knowing that he's murdered so many people, which may not have been as evident uh, at, to them up until this point that he has this dark past. Yeah. Did you see uh, the Ark of Truth, the DVD movie that came after the series? I saw some of it. I'm sorry, I didn't, don't remember it clearly. I, I'm going to send you a scene uh, after, after later on today at some point that he, he has a conversation with a, another person who is uh, in a very similar situation as, as him. And it's mostly just a monologue of, of Teal'c saying that, you know, you've, you've done terrible things. And at the same time, uh, that even though you can never forgive yourself... You must seek out justice for those um, who cannot seek it out for themselves. It's it's a it calls back to Korai, and yeah. it's it says you know this is that his journey uh, toward um, uh, seeking redemption will never be complete, 
but that every single act um, builds on uh, uh, overcoming what was what it, what he was before. Yeah, and we all have to do that, you know. Yeah. And so we Absolutely. have to grow in the time that we have. It wasn't a year later uh, you came back as Simon uh, in an episode Demons. Uh, and uh, this was a, a very uh, a different kind of character with a very uh, different... I mean, there was still gold oppression there, but there was also an internal oppression in this particular society. Uh, what do you remember about Simon? Well, yeah, this, I like the fact that he was different than Hanno. I like the fact that he was on the other end of the spectrum in terms of bravery, his right. weakness and... Um, trying to do things in a spiritual fashion and, uh, you know, trying to uh, really protect the innocent, but not having the strength or courage to, to do anything about it. Um, that was, that was an interesting one. And in terms of my, my journey in getting the role is that I, I did the drive to Vancouver all night um, in the winter. And uh, I got there, I arrived at a friend's place at about three, four in the morning and um, and I went in, I had my bike, I had a bunch of stuff because I was going to stay there for a while. I was hoping to do some auditions in Vancouver. I went into my friends and I said, do you, do you think my bike's okay back out there in my van? Should I, should I bring it in or lock it up or something? He said, yeah, yeah, it's not really a great neighborhood. I went outside, my van was gone. Everything was gone that I had. I was in my socks. I, I had a t-shirt, jeans. And I had the sides for the audition for Stargate in my pocket, fortunately, because my audition was at nine o'clock that morning. So uh, I went in, I borrowed some boots and a coat from my friend and I went into this audition, but my mind was just like, all my stuff is gone. All my clothes, like tools. Your car. My writing is a van, yeah, full of stuff. I was planning on staying there for a month. And, um, and so I think Peter DeLuise saw the desperation. <laughs> And he, he wanted that type, uh, that type of energy within the character. So I think it really helped. And then he said, oh, well, you cut your hair, you know. And, of course, I, I do like my hair. So uh, I said, sure. And I, I, I let them, you know, when I got there all, I was so excited because it was really something I needed a break after that. Uh, um, and they shaved my hair. And I kept one strand. You never really see it in the show. Oh, really? <laughs> Um, but Peter was great, and he really, uh, really kept me relaxed through the the experience, and uh, and I just I enjoyed it. I you know I do a lot of uh, studying in theology, so I always like to learn a little bit more about you know spirituality and um, Christianity and things like that. I'm just fascinated by it. So uh, I love it's where we come from. I mean, all, all, there's there's a religious background to all of us. You know, you go far back enough. Yeah, and of course it has that medieval feeling too, you know, which the dark ages and all that. So the set was fantastic. You know, they really built that that whole town there. That it was just a great place to work. Um, and of course, we were also working within the forest areas of, of North Van, and uh, I, I really enjoyed that experience. And of course, coming back to the Stargate family there um, and being so welcomed there was was excellent. The uh, Deloise, that was his that was his second season uh, uh, working on the show. Just one of my favorite people, period. Um, that particular episode was the second time we had seen an Unas before. 
So that was kind of cool. Um, and I can't imagine what it was like for that guy under that suit with the, with the makeup and everything else. Um, uh, what was it uh, uh, like dealing with, did you have any issues dealing with the environment and out of doors? I meant to ask you this on Cora as well, uh, being up in, in the, the mountain and in the forested area there, were there any days that just shut production down? No, we were really lucky there. I've had that happen in, on uh, Outer Limits experiences where suddenly the rain comes and, you know, you can shoot to a certain amount in the rain, but uh, after a while, it's just, you lose it. It's just, it becomes all grain across your screen and sound gets really bad and so forth. But no, that was, that worked out really well. It was all beautiful weather. Um, you know, uh, I enjoyed just the the transition and arc of Simon. Mm. You know, going from a character that's so afraid so so oppressed um and finding those steps with with the with the team to to find some courage and to and to be a part of 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 change you know to, again uh in some ways you know freeing um freeing the team and, and being a part of that freeing the society from tyranny um that that seemed to be a, a theme that carried over from hanno in some way um, no, and a much more active um, uh, participant in the in the transformation in this in this change as well. You know, Laura Minnell played Mary, and he uh, she was someone who Simon had agreed at least about at least a year before to to assist uh, with uh, what or at least to to help watch after. You know, yeah. and she is when we come upon the village, she is has been selected. Because of um, her, I think she had chickenpox, if I'm not mistaken. Chickenpox, that's right. Yeah. Uh, to be taken by this thing, you know, um, and he's got to do something to stop it. And then we've got SG One to to come in and help, you know, shift yeah. things around a little bit. Um, Medieval days, when you know, when they would identify a, a witch, correct? Right? <laughs> Society would, oh, let's get rid of her, right? Oh, exactly. <laughs> But um, I, I love this episode because uh, it, it, it shows those shades of gray where even when you have an evil person, like the canon doing evil things, uh, when the chips are down, you look, at, you, look at, you look to Simon and the Unas is coming after them and Simon's still protecting his leader. Despite the, f he's physically standing between the Unas and his leader. Despite whatever this guy has has done to him or his family or the people he has loved in the past, the the hero you can't deny the heroism of this guy. It's just truly un, it's truly defined right then and there. You know, when the chips are down, he he rises to the occasion. Yeah, and, and learned it's a learned thing because he he sees in the Stargate team that courage. And uh, their understanding of what his society is starts to dawn on him a little bit more. I, I don't think he loses his faith, you know, which is mm -mm. why he would protect his leader because mm -hmm. it's so intrinsic. Um, you know, and, and in a dark world, what else do you hang on to? You know, you really need something that says to you, okay, there's, there's better life beyond this. Mm -hmm. this horrid experience that I'm having. And so you, you attach yourself to that faith and, and it's that faith that gets you through those times that are, are tragic or, or horrific. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Simon had that at least, you know, as, as a, 
as a basis for his bravery that if he is going to step into the realm of danger he's he's taken care of spiritually well it's it's one of my person as a christian it's one of my personal favorite moments of the show when theuna says your god has abandoned you and he stands tall and he said my god is with me always and you know in in his heart of hearts he's spiritually uh a rock no matter what happens to him uh in the in the physical it's it's one of my favorite moments of of the series you know someone who is 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 truly exercising uh uh all, all the best parts of himself to to save the people that he loves in a, in an unjust situation and you know it's it's interesting the themes are you see you know the imprisonment in mm-hmm. rye and then you see the imprisonment in demons as well and so that finding getting a freedom finding freedom and and in, then there's the larger metaphor of us being imprisoned here on the planet you know and how the gate is a way out as a, a way to go beyond what we feel restrained to correct uh, you know that i saw that thought that was kind of interesting that it, you know both both those episodes had that element in there and and it's interesting though their their escape from it is to is to bury the gate in this particular situation rather than to go to another another planet and get in trouble. <laughs> so there's a lot of those elements there. You came back um, uh, several seasons later and on a completely different uh, uh, version of the franchise for Atlantis uh, as Avrid, and I believe it was. Was it season two? It was season two. It was season two, uh, and a lot of work with with Joe Flanagan in this episode. Tell tell us about um, that uh, experience. Uh, you know, it was. Uh, I, I really enjoyed coming back. Always, like you know, to come back and to work with people that I'm familiar with. So the crew was there was a lot of mm-hmm. crossover in the crew. Uh, Martin Wood, I had known from Edmonton. He was okay. here. In the series, I think it was Jake and the Kid, where I met him, and he was assistant <laughs> director uh, way back when. Uh, I was in uh, a season of that, um, and so he was around. And then uh, producers, you um, were around, so it was it was that kind of familiarity. Um, working outdoors, I really liked, and again, it was it was a uh, a spiritual character, which uh, you know, okay, this is great. You know, I, they saw something in me that. Uh, they liked in terms of that that quality that they thought would be right for the character of Avrid. Um, again, he starts off, you know, kind of afraid, right? <laughs> reluctant to to engage in in uh, stopping the tyranny that they're suffering, um, and yet again carrying a spiritual nature of you know peace is the way against the violence and mm-hmm. um, and eventually finding the courage again. So that quality was there. Um, great cast, you know, Joe was just, again, just, I, it, you don't always get this, David, where you go on a show and the, the main cast is so open and warm and, you know, uh, relaxed and really encouraging. Uh, it doesn't happen all the time. Usually people are so worried about success, um, that they, they miss the opportunity to engage with the people that come in and out of the show uh, and really get to know them or, or allow help them to feel more comfortable in their world that they have to go through every day, long hours and so on. So Joe was one of those great guys who just, he's absolutely like that. Uh, 
from my memory was he was just totally welcoming and uh and really easy to work with you can definitely see the different time of year in this episode that that in terms of the season in Vancouver and when it was shot because it's all sunny and gorgeous and everyone's in you know that not there's there's not a lot of mud on the ground and um i think it really lent itself to uh, the beauty of this sanctuary field that they were that they were inside of as well, and and you guys got to spend, if not, I'm not mistaken, pretty much all of of that production uh, on location. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Even the interiors were there. They were right. They were there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I love the that it's a similar. The episode's called Epiphany, by the by. Um, I have, haven't brought that up. That there is a that there is a similar arc there where the community in this particular situation uh, has to overcome a shared uh, 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 threat that is keeping them from finding their true path and rejoining the rest of their kind. Yes, and. and- so was the character was there to help them do that, right? And they recognized that that he was the one that was going to help them get to the ascension that they were moving towards, and and the reason they were in the sanctuary was to ascend. So uh, yeah, it's a, again a similar theme in that, and 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 I think it, the writers are drawing from so much of our history in that way, and the show itself, like Stargate, is can one of my fascinations with it is it's this historical aspects of it that they're finding, you know, archeology span and things yes. that guide them forward. And so here's a realm that's been isolated from the rest of the universe. And, and that isolation in itself is the barrier to their ascension. Uh, they, they need the fear of outside what's outside and in a way creates that monster that invisible, powerful oppressor that's there. And uh, yeah, I, th- I think there's that, those are really strong themes that we need to get beyond nationhood in some way, or even, you know, where our, our neighborhood is the only thing. We have to know that our, it's our interaction with others uh, that makes us better as a whole. You know, I, 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 looking at these uh, three episodes, it, really does uh, show how threats can come from abroad, but also help comes from abroad as well. Uh, and you have to be, um, well, in, in this third episode of the situation, they, they literally self-contained. No one could really come in easily. But, you know, always be open to the possibility of new knowledge and new information and new experiences from others. It's not always just going to be, you know, oh, this this person is only a threat. You know, uh, I, I think that I think that the that these episodes really uh, share in the potential of learning and growing like you said, from others, from beyond our borders. Yeah, and our own philosophies. You know, like we have to at least open our mind enough to hear the the different perspectives. Um, and then that can carry us forward because we weigh it against our own beliefs and, and realize that there are some commonalities. And that's what we should enjoin um, ourselves to in order to make a better world and a better experience for mm-hmm. all opposed to just myself my i'm okay i don't need to i don't need to mix with anybody else well what what are you missing yeah 
Yeah. What's coming comes in makes you better, you know. That's right, you know. And Shepard, when he when he first shows up, they they have the 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 montages of time passing. You don't want to sit there and meditate, you know. This he's a, he's a warrior. This is not what he does. You know, this is he's he much rather be you know running and gunning. Uh, but he also takes from them as well, and I think finds a degree of inner peace that he didn't before. Yeah, you see that in the show. He starts to he goes from being really bored with the whole thing, and by and then he starts to just kind of allow it to happen to him. Uh, you know, I I'd love to see that uh, that kind of arc continue for him, but I mean, he didn't go down that path where he just becomes a more of a spiritual leader in some way. I it, but it indicates that you know we are we are capable of those things if we uh, uh, of things that we don't think that that we can do if we quiet our minds and listen yeah. to ourselves a little bit more. I, if, if, if I take anything away from epiphany, it's, it's to, it's to slow down and listen to the, your inner voices a little bit more and fil- filter out some of, of the noise in the world and be, you know, be also be receptive to, to those who are trying to tell you something. So, yeah. yeah. Isn't it great how, you know, just television shows can kind of bring that into your, your contemplation. Oh, Absolutely. Star I think Stargate specifically, you can you can on the surface just watch it as an action, particularly Atlantis as an action show. Um, or you can there there is philosophy to pull from it if you so choose. Like Star Wars, you know, it's very, very similar in that way. Yeah. So and each show has themes that they they want to explore and they want the audiences to think about uh, and to take away and yeah. and into their own lives and and th- that is an enrichment and that's what brings us back to those shows when we are being enriched by them if it is just all action okay that's you know entertainment but you're not thinking about that beyond the show correct when it has something that it wants to say and it struggles with you know whether it's a a, a theme that is you know controversial then then it's creating that uh, that thought that in everybody and every viewer and they they toss it around in, in the people within their lives and so are broadened by the by doing so. Yeah. Absolutely. I've got some fan questions for you. <laughs> are, are we good on time? Oh, I'm good, yeah. Okay. Lockwatcher, uh, you landed roles in both uh, SG-1 and Atlantis. Were there any differences in working between the two casts? Um, my The only difficulty for me there was that I didn't get to work with the uh, other cast members outside of Joe. Yeah. So my, all my interaction was him, except for one scene where they come in and there's the, the combative uh, against the, the beast. Um, I, I think that with the Stargate, they, that first season, they were really getting to know it themselves. And you could see that they were trying to figure out their characters and their relationships with each other and the crew. Um, and I, I came in as, as a guest on that. And I, I was really welcomed by everyone, but I could tell that it was a beginning, you know, and, and no one really knew where it was going to go. Um, the next time that I came in, it was really established. They were, they were who they were. And uh, I also came back. I brought some of my college students. I was teaching college uh, at one point and uh, for a couple of years, uh, a motion picture arts uh, program. And I brought eight of my students into Vancouver to introduce them to agents in the community called up Stargate and they said, oh, bring them all down. So why, I was able to bring all my students down and they got to meet them and wander around set. And Is it this was during just, Atlantis? During Star SG-1. During SG-1. Um, 
So that now is just so great. Wow. And coming back years later to do Atlantis, I didn't know what to expect. Right. But it had a very similar feel in terms of that first year of Stargate where they were getting to know each other and who their characters are. And uh, they were starting to get a rhythm. You know, you could see that that, that rhythm was happening, that it becomes like a, a machine, you know, a well-oiled machine. They know exactly mm-hmm. what they need to do on a day-to-day basis. And the stress just kind of disappears, which makes the craft better. Correct. Spider Mag uh, wanted to know, uh, is there an actor that you've worked with that inspired you to really sharpen your craft? Um, Peter Donay. Um, I don't know if you know Peter Donay. Uh, He, I worked with him in a production of Man for All Seasons uh, here at the Citadel Theater. Uh, I played the common man and uh, he was uh, Sir Thomas More. And I watched everything he did from first day rehearsal to the final performance. Uh, I would sit in the voms of a a thrust stage. And when he was on stage and I wasn't, I was watching him. I was riveted to his, his work. And what I found was that he, everything was fresh every time. There was no, uh, I'm going to do it like I did it before. He was listening so well and just naturally in the moment without any uh, artifice attached to his performance. Um, I was smitten by it. So he's the one guy in terms of act, the craft of acting in theater that I really was amazed by. Um, I got to work with John Vernon in a, if you remember John Vernon, the Dean from American Graffiti. Okay. Uh, And and we did a, an independent film together and, um, he he was so intense in his work. Um, he everything had to be right. Um, I remember, you know, the the first reading I did with him. They were trying to put a certain costume, test a costume on him, and he rejected that costume completely because he really felt he knew this guy, and it became combative with the wardrobe head, and that wardrobe head was fired as a result. Wow. And I was like, wow, this guy is, uh, he's bent on knowing who he is and he wants to stay with that. Um, He was a gentleman in, in, in the work process, but once that camera rolled, there was a, there was a click. And uh, I, I enjoyed that experience a lot just to, to see how that, that man worked. And he had done so much television by that point. So he was another guy that I attached my uh, my eyes to and watching and listening and trying to pick up as much as I could. I don't know. I mean, to have uh, that kind of of uh, control over oh, he, I would not wear that as that person. <laughs> to, to Why the would point you argue? That, yeah, yeah. Um, argue. He's the, he's the lead. Right? Yeah, that's the thing. That's what it comes down to, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Rick Donner, uh, what theater techniques do you think uh, helped you translate uh, to television and film? Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I kept hearing uh, that um, props and costumes um, and, you know, just camera, everybody appreciated was the type of discipline that I brought. And I really picked that up in training as a, as a stage actor. Um, you know, there's no room for error when you're walking out on a stage that 
is live and the audience is there. So your preparation is so important. Um, and so, and then the respect of the craft. So, you know, how you hung up, hang up your costumes at the end of a day and uh, how you take care of things, how you protect your costume, how you protect your props um, and, and all the work that they're doing for you to help you perform. Um, I, I never neglected that. And I think that discipline came from the theater and I, I continually apply it. And it's a sign of respect uh, and for everyone that's, that's working on it in a collaborative form. Uh, I think that sometimes actors bypass that and they get to where there's an ego and, and maybe it's part of trying to hang on to a confidence, but they somehow treat the crew as less. Um, mm. They're all knowing and uh, the crew, well, the crew's looking at you, right? They're the eyes. They're the ones that see that your hair is out of place so that your costume is not right or whatever it might be, or your words aren't perfect and things like that. So just respect for them is something that I, I really think translated well from the theater into uh, the craft of film and television, though they are two different beasts. You know, I, um, yeah, the, the thing of, I was saying earlier about just bring it back, you know, just, just bring it back. And um, when I was so, so trained to be large. Uh, right. Through- they're out there in the crowd, you know, yeah. they're not right up here in the lens. And I'm looking at your eyelash, you know, yeah. you just know. So that reeling it in is, is something that you're not going to get from the theater, but the theater will give you the confidence to adapt, to change, to know that it's okay to do that. And uh, because if you've gone through doing large roles or any role on a stage in front of a lar- large audience live every time, you, you gain a real grounded uh, sense of your ability. And... Nice. And, and the ability to change it, you know, to manipulate it and, and yeah. turn it into things, right? Adjust from one take to another. Have you ever asked did you, did you, for for another take to be done, it's like to, to try it a different way? Uh, yeah, I have. Yeah, sometimes I've, I just felt I, I didn't do it. You know, I didn't find the emotion that was that was correct for that particular mm. response or reaction. Um, you know, I, sometimes it's it's what's going on in your own life that kind of gets in the way in some ways. So you can easily be distracted. Um, Sometimes things are broken up. So I I was doing one movie and it was a very emotional scene and uh, the director cut halfway through this, this take because they wanted a different angle on it or something. And I was like, you know, I have to start from the beginning in order to make that happen. I can't just, you know, you know, cut now, bring it up there. It's like you need some emotional flow to that. So yeah, I have asked, but not often. Off, I like to uh, hand it over, you know, to them in their eyes. Is particularly the director who who has the all all the knowledge as to what the end result should be. Yeah, but you have to work to that end result. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to trust that, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like, hey, buddy, if this sucks from starting from from B instead of A, you'll know why. So. Yeah, your name's on it too. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Pac-Man D3, I think we kind of answered that one, but maybe not necessarily what you think the biggest difference in challenges between acting on stage and then and then and TV or film. Yeah, in, and also, you know, like one, to add to a little bit more, um, vocal quality, you know, like, 
We'll see it so much today. And, and for me as a, a you know theater trained actor, I'm often frustrated when I'm watching television and particularly film. Mm. It's all talk like this. Everything comes down to there's And I'm like going, what? What did you say? Those words are important. I want to hear. But because that mic is hidden right here or whatever it is, you know, or the boom is just above them, there's no pushing it. It's just all in check. And I think that's a really good thing to apply when you're doing television and film. It's just, it'll stop you from being too big. It'll stop you from putting, you know, too much on this small screen. Um, just pull it all, pull it all in. Pull it all back. Yeah. <laughs> Melissa Smith, um, is any special moment in your career that still sticks out and has encouraged you to uh, forward in your craft? Um, encouragement, you know, encouragement comes often from, um, the people around you that have said, Hey, that was great. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. Or I was touched by that. Or, um, you know, most of my accolades that I really hang on to as a, as a person are the ones that I got from my students. Um, because, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time with them on a daily basis and so forth. And when I'd get a card at the end of the year or I'd get a kid come up and, and say thank you for getting them through a production that they didn't think they would get through, those are the things that have moved me forward and, and made me love mm-hmm. the art so much more. Um, in terms of the biz, it's, uh, it's hard to think right off the top, but I know that there's been lots of them where someone has come up. Um, and just said, you know, hey, I really enjoyed what you just did with that. And and I just take that, put it in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. For a rainy day when it's like, whoo, I don't think I did very well today. You know, yeah. you're going to have bad days. For you sure. know, there especially when you're when you're doing a run of a show where you do 60, 90 iterations of it, um, outside is going to interfere with inside. You know, to and I would, th- I, I mean, having done it in high school, um, and you just have to do the best you can to filter it out, you know, or maybe incorporate it into the intensity of a performance, you know. Yeah, and so Let's often, you try know, a little different tonight. You know, myself included, we often are our worst critics, right? So, you know, auditioning is 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 a horrid world. <laughs> it's a terrible place to be, but because you you don't get the um, the direction that you need, you know, and, and, and as an actor, you uh, take confidence in the idea that you can change. You can, if somebody gives you a note, okay, I'll, I'll apply that note or those notes to this next scene. But when you're auditioning, you get no notes. You get a very small little bio as to who the character might be. And your side is just might be a scene or two scenes or something within a larger story that you're not, you're not privy to. So it's a real, it's kind of a guessing game, rolling the dice, you know, do what you think is right and, and hope that it, it gets you the, the chance to perform further. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a tough world. You're, you criticize yourself all the time and going, oh, I could have done that better. I could have done that better. But then sometimes you overthink it as well. It's like, I, you know, I, I should have just gone with the first take. <laughs> right. Just let it happen. Right. And then decide. You know, whether that's, that's the right or not. Well, Stephen King talks about, um, you know, what, often his first go at a sentence when he's writing, uh, he says, you know, you can always go back and you can always rework it. You will always find more words. 
if you need to, to, to reexamine a sentence that you've created, but is it really going to make it that much better? You know, sometimes your first instincts are your first instincts for a reason. Yeah. And then, then you overthink it and you add too much to it and it becomes too much. Right. You know, Steve is also great on terms of taking away words, right? You, we say too much so often, just clip, 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 bring it down to its essence. That's and exactly that's- right. Yeah. Second draft equals first draft minus 10%. Yeah. It's <laughs> one of his, one of the things I remember from him. Um, Tracy, are you currently working on any projects you can talk about? Um, I'm working on a very exciting project I can't talk about. <laughs> uh, NDA, you know. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I'm really excited this particular month. I'm doing something far out. So uh, I'll hold off on that one. <laughs> well, please so e- email us. So or I'll also be keeping an eye on the Googles as well for that one. Uh, we'll definitely share that. So, uh, and, and last but certainly not least, uh, Teresa MC, would you step through the Stargate uh, if given the opportunity. Yes, I would. I, I used to always go with, uh, you know, when we get into those uh, morbid conversations, like, uh, what are you going to do when you die? Like, are you going to get cremated or buried? I always said, I always want to be shot into space. So if they had a Stargate, they could just like shuffle me through there. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if there was a Stargate right now, I think I would go. I would, I'm, I'm an explorer. I love getting out into the mountains and into the woods and I, I'm, I love canoeing and stuff like that. So I think any adventure is really exciting. I love traveling. My wife and I travel a lot and uh, we continue to, to look for opportunities to do more of that. So uh, I would travel through the gate for sure. Mm. You? Me? Yeah. Uh, I think I would with a written guarantee of survival. of course i would yeah absolutely (laughs) last question for you misadventures of a little wolf what what do you do in your downtime you know what 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 do you uh do to free yourself from your there's a lot of things i'm doing i i'm retired so uh a lot of free time right now um one of the things i'm doing is a lot of duolingo uh learning spanish okay reviewing French and I'm also learning Hebrew um, oh. just for something to do. I'm, I'm reading lots. I've written a lot of poetry throughout my life. So uh, the problem is, is that it's all in pencil and in cursive writing. So I'm slowly doing all the typing of it, <laughs> of, of my collections of poetry. Uh, I do some script writing just, you know, on the side. I do some sub- supply teaching. I'll be... Um, covering 10 one acts next week, helping them a bunch of students get through some one acts, um, both in terms of their tech and, and their performances. Um, so yeah, I'm, my days are filled, but you know, the nice thing about being retired is that I can go, no, exactly right. I was like, yeah, this guy sounds like he's retired. Not yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm retired in that. I can say no. Yeah, there you I go. <laughs> David, this has, um, this has been a, a real pleasure for me, pleasure. sir. I love having you and uh, thank your, your, your significance to the body of work that is this, uh, this, this show is, is um, it's, it's, it's a big deal to, ha- to have you. So I really appreciate having you on. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I know I wished I would have done more. I, I enjoyed the experience so much. I'm, I'm happy that it's being celebrated by so many fans mm-hmm. because people that were involved in it were just excellent. Yeah. You know, and 
Philippe Canet said, yeah, we would have liked to have seen you on Destiny as well in Stargate Universe. It's like, yeah, you know, there's only... <sighs> that show got cut way too short. So it's entirely possible he's out there floating around. So Let's hope there's a new one, right? Oh, absolutely. Old- yes, sir. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up on my end. I really, really appreciate you, to, you uh, joining me today, sir. And all Thank the best you. to you. My pleasure. And thanks, fans. <laughs> Thank you, David. Be well. David McNally of Stargate SG-1 and Atlantis. Thank you so much for tuning in today. A uh, couple of questions uh, for me. I know my volume has been an issue. I am working on that. I just tried a new cable and a new port on the computer. Um, so I apologize. I'm still tweaking that. Uh, General Maximus says, Sundays are perfect for me for the show. Just wanted to let you know that if it is a permanent switch. Consider making it. So Wormhole Extremist is on Sundays. And uh, right now we're going to keep the bulk of the Dial the Gate interviews on Saturdays. Uh, unless a guest makes a special request because they can't make it. We've got John Delancey Q coming up um, in, in a, a Wednesday in a couple of weeks from now, a week and a half or so. So keep an eye on the schedule at dialthegate.com uh, for uh, all of those uh, details. And if you enjoyed, enjoyed the episode, consider uh, giving us uh, a like as well. Um, my thanks to my producer, uh, Linda Gategabber Fury, uh, as well as my moderating team, Summer, Tracy, Jeremy, Reese, and Anthony. Anthony really stepped up today. Uh, we've got some, some power outage problems because of the weather uh, across the Americas, so uh, uh, we're, we're making it happen for you guys as well. And big thanks to Frederick Marcou at Concepts Web, our web developer who, uh, who makes the show uh, continue to, to go. My thanks again to David McNally today for making this, uh, this episode possible. He is, is one of my favorite guest stars from uh, uh, SG-1 in Atlanta, so it was really a privilege to have him. Jonathan Glasner is pre-recorded and coming up in just 55 minutes. So he's going to be talking about uh, the arc and uh, uh, sharing more memories from uh, Stargate uh, SG-1 uh, as well, the first uh, three seasons. And uh, after him, next week, we have on February the 11th at 12 noon, currently scheduled, James Tishner, visual effects producer and writer, Stargate SG-1, and at uh, 12 noon Pacific time. And then Anna Galvin at 4 p.m. Pacific time as well. Uh, multiple roles in Stargate SG-1, Atlantis, and Universe. She's one of the few uh, actors that did all three. I may have a 2 o'clock booking here. Uh, I'm trying to get a certain YouTuber on who's been doing a rewatch of Stargate. Uh, so if we get him, I uh, will definitely let you all know between uh, here and there. Keep an eye on the social channels. And I hope you join us for Wormhole Extremists tomorrow because we're doing Tin Man and There Before the Grace of God on the Wormhole Extremist channel starting at 12 noon Pacific time. My name is David Reed for Dial the Gate. I really appreciate you tuning in and we will see you on the other side. I can find my end title button. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner, co-produced by Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acri. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith O'Mell, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo design by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots, with contributions by model makers Chris Baker, Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. 
For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes at dialthegate.com. <laughs>